360Ed TV is brought to you by Rice Studios and Agility. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Bridget Burns. She's the Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance. Welcome to 360Ed TV, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Bridget, um, you've spent the greater part of the last 15 years or so building more at scale understandings and insights into the higher ed systems around the world, but particularly in the US. In Australia, we have a somewhat bleak policy and engagement story with federal governments of both persuasions. Policy outcomes in, in the form of decreased funding, efficiency dividends, and increases to student fees fly in the face of acknowledged concerns that we have in areas such as accessibility, equity, and broader stalling economic growth. Have you got any insights into what we, indeed the US and the UK, should really be thinking about as we try to shape a better macro policy? Well, all of those challenges sound incredibly familiar. They're basically what American higher ed institutions are struggling with too. Um, we're facing declining financial support for institutions. They are you know, they have limited budgets and then pressure to keep tuition down. All the while, we need to increase our outcomes. So I feel you. Um, I think in general, what's really important is institutions need to take a step back and first know that there is no path forward alone. Institutional behavior has to shift from being individual to being collective. The only way that you can position higher education to meet society's needs is if you focus on collective action. Um, Second, I would say that it's really important to think about what does your long-term economic growth need from higher education. It, and thinking about universities as job trainers is a really myopic, narrow view that doesn't serve um, mm. society. Really thinking about this, if institutions are going to be hotbeds of innovation, training active, smart citizens who contribute to society, um, bringing about new, fresh ideas and also creating dynamic thinkers who can step into potentially the workforce, but also evolve the workforce forward. Um, so I, I think having a long-term view about higher education, a bigger picture view, and um, last, I would say, focus on scale. For us, it's really about, you know, what, you know, I talked about this in my presentation in, in Melbourne, but in higher education in America, we know that we're facing a massive shortfall of college degrees. To meet economic demand, we need to be producing about, um, about 11 million more college degrees than we currently are producing. Um, and, we're on, and by 2025, we need to do that. So we need to aggressively increase the uptick of, of productivity. And we're also doing a pretty mediocre job for communities that have historically um, struggled in higher education, low-income, first-generation students of color. And we know that since higher education is the engine of economic mobility, um, we really need to figure this out. And we need to step up in a big way or else we're leaving a lot of talent on the table. So I would last say think about scale, focus on producing more, more degrees from across the socioeconomic spectrum, but also understand that what your job is is really to cultivate talent. And these are talent kind of hubs and um, creating the environment where institutions can work together to step up for their local economy, regional economy, national economy in a way that is anticipatory and really setting you up for long-term economic potential is gonna be a critical piece. 
Bridget, thank you for those thoughts. Uh, again, there is that 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 clear kind of resonance across the Pacific to many of the similar sorts of questions and demands being placed on our universities as well. Um, your presentation uh, is entitled Move Faster Together or Go Slow Alone. And that really does springboard off what you were just talking about, I think. Can you share some of your thoughts and your insights with us? Yeah, so uh, what I talked about at the conference is uh, really sharing a story about a group of institutions who should not have been able to figure out how to come together and should not have been able to accomplish a lot together just based on history where higher education is very isolated. The rewards are very individual. Uh, you get the degree, you're going to move up in the rankings. It's very much about individual institutions, individual actors. And so uh, the UIA, the University Innovation Alliance, I'll talk a bit more about, um, but it's a group of institutions that has found a way to uh, develop a different type of, of community of practice to try and work together to help each other accelerate innovation. And what we've learned is that you go faster together. And actually, uh, campuses focusing only on themselves or focusing only on their own boundaries and their own needs um, is, is a really quick way for an institution to be left behind. And if you really want to be stepping into the future, institutions need to understand that they are not alone in struggling with these challenges and that the real call for all of us in higher education is to find a way of moving forward as a collective uh, because no institution is gonna be able to address any of the big challenges that we're facing on their own. So, um, you know, what I did is I shared about how, you know, exactly how my institutions work together, um, how we share ideas in a different way and uh, designed around people taking action instead of just admiring the problem, which is a kind of a history of higher ed is we're really good at talking about what's, what's wrong. Um, but we think it's really important for us to, you know, we spend a lot of energy thinking very strategically about how we design our classroom experience because we're, we're really focused on making sure our students learn and they take action and they, um, they, they don't just, you know, the whole, uh, we're not just trying to cover the material, we're trying to transfer the ideas. And so that coverage versus transfer challenge that is about curriculum and pedagogy, it's like we never realize that we should think the same way about our own education, our own professional development, and how ideas spread in our sector. Um, so what we are trying to do is think, uh, think thoughtfully about how we help institutions make progress, learn from each other, and um, develop ideas and innovate together at a scale that is simply impossible when you think about individual campuses working alone. And I think your comment about, or, or the theme of doing this at scale is is so relevant, especially when we think about the goal uh, that you've set um, about improving the outcomes of all learners, uh, irrespective of background or starting point. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about why that focus was so important for uh, the Alliance? Yeah, so... You know, we first, the alliance came together because um, 11 presidents and chancellors uh, of, of our universities, which is your equivalent of vice chancellor, they were united around a sense of urgency that we were not producing enough degrees to meet future economic demand. And we were doing a terrible job with low income, first generation students of color. And mm. the added pressure that came in is that in 2013, for the first time in U.S. history, 
low-income students became the majority of students in public K-12. So in primary school, now the, the large number of students who are going to be coming to, hopefully, to higher education institutions represent a background that we've historically done a really bad job with. Um, and it's not because we don't care. It's actually because of some broader fundamental challenges. So these institutional leaders realize huge national challenge, huge national problem that will really, the economic competitiveness of the United States is at stake if we don't figure this out. And institutions, we have almost, um, you know, there's 7,000 universities and colleges in the United States, about 4,800 probably are accredited degree granting. Mm -hmm. And all of those institutions, like heads down, focusing on their own lane and tinkering uh, will not result in any progress that really meets the needs of society. And so basically it was, you know, if we don't find a way to work together effectively, then we are wasting time, energy, and money. And the time, energy, and money belongs to students. And we have to do better. So that group of presidents came together, formed the alliance. And in the alliance, our, our focus has been about really stepping up to um, mm. first to produce more degrees, more degrees across the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, innovating together and holding our costs down. But finally, and importantly, sharing our data transparently and holding each other accountable. So it was really important that we were not, um, we were not like a hype machine. We actually had credibility and we held each other accountable. Yeah. And so when people do good things, they get, award, they get rewarded, but um, otherwise we're not just going to be pandering to passing the microphone to everyone because, well, you haven't had a chance at the microphone. We have to make sure that the ideas that we're spreading have been really truly proven and are worthy of being shared. And so uh, that's basically what we've done as a group. Um, and we've been around for three years now. So it's interesting that you're, you're very focused on ensuring that your own KPIs, if you like, around sharing that story comes back to your your progress, your performance uh, to deliver on the the outcomes that you you, know, you, you hold are so important. Um, you mentioned data uh, just now, and uh, some of the alliance's recent work in the use of predictive analytics to improve retention, persistence, completion rates looks really promising. Can you share an example uh, and the implications that you're seeing at scale? Yeah, so we, when we first formed, the UIA had three campuses actively using predictive analytics. And I can share one example of a campus using it. Um, but by the end of our first year, we had 10 campuses using predictive analytics. So when you think about what the Alliance is doing, it's about creating a space where campuses will really trust each other to tell each other about the hard things, the things that didn't work out, the failures, that um, the things that people wish they knew before they started when they were thinking about adopting this. And, and if you create those kinds of environments, that kind of trust, then people will move faster uh, because they, you know, they can actually ask the hard question that nobody wants to ask. So in our, in our case, uh, Georgia State University, Arizona State University, and UT Austin were all using predictive analytics and they have great stories about each one of them. The one that most people know about is Georgia State. And GSU 
uh, I would never have been talking to you about them a decade ago. They were an institution performing very poorly um, and really struggling as an urban campus in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, since that time, they have a new president and a whole new vision as an institution. They, they have managed to double their graduation rate, and they are the only campus who has eliminated race and income as a predictor of outcome. So what they've done is not cherry pick a few uh, students from low income or communities of color, and, which is a strategy that many, many campuses mm. have used. Instead, they stepped up and redesigned their entire institution around student success. And as a result, they also eliminated disparities at scale. And we know that's true because they're now the number one producer of African-American bachelor's degrees in the United States at a not-for-profit institution and they're not an HBCU. Um, so at Georgia State, they use predictive analytics, and the way that I would describe how it works is, uh, one critical piece of predictive analytics is you need to have all of your old data transferred and you know refined, cleaned, synthesized to find out where you have been getting in the way for students. And at Georgia State, they uh, looked at all their historical data and, and said, you know, what have we been, what if we were the problem? And how could we figure out where where to triage our attention. So they found that there were 800 indicators, um, whether it's, you know, changing a class, not showing up for your academic advising appointment, um, getting a, a, a relatively mediocre grade on an early uh, class paper or yeah. things like that. So they found those 800 indicators that were the red flags that they wish they'd always known. And then they have an analytics system that has been really built for them. Um, that takes those 800 indicators and it basically shifts the institution from being reactionary to anticipatory. So every Monday, they know every student who is about to get off track before the student gets off track. And on Mondays, they get a printout of all those students and then they deploy 3,000 academic advising hours to intervene before the student gets off track. So if you contrast that with the average American institution, or even Australian, I would argue, uh, where we have academic advisors who are waiting for students to know they have a problem, to come and tell us they have a problem, and then show up in our office and ask for help, that's simply often too late. Um, uh, the way I would describe it is uh, with the red, green, yellow light, like a, like a traffic light, in most of higher education, the time when we interact with students is when they are in red and it is too late. And at Georgia State and frankly at institutions where predictive analytics is actively being used in the right way, um, institutions can get to the point where they know when a student is going from green to yellow. And that's how you know an institution is really pivoted and focused on the needs of the student. And um, so yeah, that's, that's an example of predictive analytics being used in real time. And then, you know, after that, we shared that knowledge with all of our campuses. We now have 10 campuses. Uh, our 11th is coming on board this year uh, using predictive analytics. And we are now doing a 10,000 student random control trial to see uh, what ways our academic advisors, um, when they interact with first-generation college students, low-income college students, exactly what they do, um, how is it going to lead to them coming back and performing well. So right now we know advising matters 
like our gut instinct. We know that it matters, but there's actually very little, uh, there's very little data in terms of um, random control trials or otherwise that has met the highest threshold for evidence um, that shows us exactly what to do as an advisor, when to intervene, what to say, and therefore what kinds of outcomes you can receive. So we are doing a, a kind of a big study as a group that is only possible because our campuses first focused in the first year on adopting predictive analytics. And now we're moving to a place where our institutions are trying to move the rest of the field forward. That is extraordinarily exciting. And that data set that you're building across the 10,000 students, that will give you tremendous insight. And we talked about at scale before. I can't think of a better um, a better example. And I guess also when you think about the um, the geographical spread of those institutions, it gives you a sense of what happens um, across a broad set of demographics too and uh, geographics. So. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is only possible yeah. because these institutions – actually started trusting each other. There's no way they would have signed off on a project like this. This project came from uh, Tim Rennick at Georgia State and colleagues across the Alliance kind of and, submit, and was supported by the First in the World project um, or program out of the U.S. Department of Education. This wouldn't have happened if they hadn't spent a lot of time getting to know each other and trusting each other because yeah. there was a lot of uh, trust required. Well, it comes back to the richness of the relationships that you're essentially brokering, but also nurturing as well, and the value that's being uh, perceived and delivered by the Alliance. Uh, it, unless it was doing those things, then you wouldn't be getting the traction that you're getting. So um, that's that's fantastic. Um, Bridget, um, you wrote uh, in EdSurge, uh, I think last year, uh, and you, you quoted a little bit of, well, you were part of a Dr. Seuss kind of themed set of articles. Uh, and you wrote that you're hopeful that venture capital community will start to challenge the industry so that they begin to focus more on transformation as opposed to disruption. Um, you're seeking a more measured approach, I, I guess, uh, and you suggest and, – and I'd be interested to know how we might achieve that, that mind shift away from disruption and buzzwords back to transformational change when – venture capital companies tend to operate in an environment of you know, bootstrapping and funded ventures and getting that IPO off the ground. Um, are there any examples that come to mind of companies that have started to go through that early phase but have looked at a, a transformational approach? I am hesitant to call it a specific company, but I will say that the companies that end up making a lot of money and being very successful, which there are very few in the ed tech space, I mean, there's a lot of money that's going in um, and a lot of investment and a lot of prototypes coming out and a lot of new startups. But in terms of um, ed tech companies that have really managed to connect with the market in a way as a partner that is sustained and actually making a change and is being um, picked up at a, at, a, at a significant part of the market, that's, a, that's not as, as big as I think people think. Um, so I will say that I watch this behavior and I think there are some issues that need to be tweaked. And one of them, uh, which I mentioned in that piece, is that this antagonistic, we need to throw, throw everything out and start over, that kind mm. of mindset is so unhelpful. And it's a real fast way to not sell anything to anyone. <laughs> and um, to not be seen as a partner in trying to solve what is really an, uh, a really challenging 
problem. Um, how do you do a better job for students? How do you measure learning more effectively? How do you improve efficiency and outcomes? How do you make it so that change is less painful? I mean, I think these are all things that um, people need to spend a lot more time on the empathy end of it uh, in terms of the design process. We need more startup founders, more ed tech leaders, and frankly, more venture capitalists uh, focusing on ask, asking what problems people have in the education space first, and then actually watching their behavior and seeing how things work. Because I think there are a lot of, um, I wouldn't say it's like character assassination, but there is certainly some mud being thrown as though the, um, the bureaucrats are the problem. When the reality is, mm. um, if you spend enough time in a classroom and on, an, on a campus, what you will find is that administrators deeply care about students, faculty deeply care about students. They actually like change. They want change. It's hard to change in a bureaucracy for good reason. Our institutions have existed for more longer than the church. Um, there's a reason that stability comes. Bureaucracy is a part of that. And we can't just talk about bureaucracy in a very negative uh, framework. We have to understand it's also why it's so resilient and why education has been able to have the impact it's had. So, but knowing that most administrators, they are trudging through and they are trying to change. They want to change. So the assumption that they are somehow the uh, opponent or they are hostile to change or that um, they need to be disrupted is really unhelpful. And, and also it's just totally toned up and it's a fast way for people to kick you out of their office. Um, and I think that we, what we need to understand is that um, if you want to be successful, spend more time understanding their, their challenges. But at the end of the day, if you want to build a successful startup, you actually need an ally who's an administrator who can issue spot for you. If you're going to navigate transitioning into an academic environment or standing up a highly complex thing, um, you know, you, your best friend is going to be that administrator that five minutes ago you were calling a bureaucrat, right? So mm. I just think that mm. there needs to be greater understanding, um, less of a focus on upending the table and disruption. Most people don't even actually understand the theory behind it, and they're, mis they're, they're mischaracterizing what they're trying to do. What we should just say is we want to improve. We want to change. Change is hard. Change is hard alone. Change is hard in groups. Um, and, you know, there's a reason that a lot of academic administrators um, still have Yahoo emails, right? Like, I don't know if the last time you changed your email address, but it's a pain learning new systems. Um, and so we have to understand that just like you as a person, as a consumer, like change is hard. Well, it is as well in an academic environment. And um, the best example I would give is that when I when I have important things to share with people, I use PowerPoint even though I know PowerPoint is an inferior product, that it was created in the 80s, and there are much more savvy and whiz-bang ideas out there that I could use. I could use other products. The reason that I use PowerPoint is because I actually care about whether or not my ideas get across, and I trust it. I know it works. It's not great, but it works. And for academic administrators, people need to understand that we're not going to just try any random product that's been unproven because these people actually care about students. The stakes are so high. And so they're not willing to just like, oh, sure, I'll try your product that's totally untested and has no validation studies behind it. I mean, people need to understand that part of the resistance is because they care. And you need to understand that and then understand how 
lead with the question about what they're really struggling with, how they could use your help, and then watch, observe, listen, focus on empathy. Um, but in the end, that person is your best ally if you're going to be effective at transforming higher education. Bridget, you just, that, oh. you've just <laughs> created a masterclass theme there for um, EdTech 101. That was uh, a really great uh, um, bundling up of the approach that up-and-comers, those those plucky ed techs who have something special to share, need to consider in their in their go-to-market. And I'd also suggest that part of that uh, ed tech 101 session would involve getting across to GSU and seeing the transformational change that has occurred. Uh, in terms of race and background no longer being a predictor of of success that i think is is the real gem the nugget that uh, that you've mm -hmm. been able to share with us i think that's just an extraordinary outcome so bridget thank you so much for your time um it has been an absolute delight uh to listen to you and also to to hear about the work that the alliance is doing really at the coalface in a way which truly could better inform EdTechs to do a better job and lift the industry. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm delighted to share. And um, I, you know, I think the biggest thing about the Alliance that people need to understand is uh, we are not just about ourselves. We're about starting a movement. And yeah. so people should know this is possible. We didn't know that this was going to work out. And this, uh, you know, we just announced that we've increased low-income degrees in the Alliance across the UIA by 25%. And we have 110,000 low-income students. So, um, and that's three years. So we know that it's possible that you can build relationships that don't exist yet. And I think Georgia State and, frankly, the other campuses in the Alliance who have adopted and borrowed ideas from Georgia State, what that shows is change is possible. Um, who we were is not who we have to be. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you can only do this with a combination of leadership change management and technology. Technology has to be a partner in the process. And so that's part of why I am so passionate about helping EdTech is I know that the only way we get to scale is we change the relationship between EdTech and higher ed and actually step up as a in, in partnership together. Mm. No, thank you. And look, for anyone who is watching this podcast, I strongly, strongly recommend, I really encourage you to go and have a look at the Alliance's uh, website, the resources, the case studies that are there are really, really interesting. And on the back of what uh, Bridget's just shared with us about uh, Georgia State, um, I'm actually more excited about going back now and looking at that uh, that information. Bridget, if uh, we can um, uh, dig into that data in a useful way for our, you know, for, for, for the university sector more broadly here in Australia, we'd be delighted. So thank you so much. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, we're going to be releasing uh, the, the preliminary results from the 10,000 student random control trial starting in 2018. And we're going to hold a national convening where any campus who wants to learn everything that we've learned can come. Wow. So I'm happy to follow up and share that with you once we have the final date for that. Oh, well, we're looking forward to a, to a webcast of it. We can <laughs> sit down and hear what's okay. happening. Yeah. That's so exciting. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much.